Good morning, church. It is uh, good to see you and good to be with you today. Uh, I think most of us were smiling when we got up this morning and saw water, water on my deck, on the road, and more is coming. Many of us have been praying for humidity, for rain, for a shift, and we're very thankful for this. I'm also thankful uh, to just be with you uh, today and to be here as we continue our uh, journey through God's Word. We have uh, a lot to see in today's passage. This is interesting, the timing of this passage. We have, uh, if I just jump to the last sentence, we have a monarchy ending. We have this king rejected in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 23. And of course, in the news, all throughout the world has been another end to a monarchy in contemporary events, one that is almost completely opposite of the one that we are going to read about. Someone, uh, Queen Elizabeth, whose life has been celebrated. Have you seen the lines on TV, like miles long, hours long, people weeping, uh, great respect, and honor for uh, that monarch whose long reign ended. We have here a monarch, the first king of Israel, whose life is uh, a tragedy, a life that is uh, regretful. And we're going to see what God has to show us from his life today. In fact, before we get into the text, maybe a word to describe what's at the heart of the failure of this first monarch of Israel, of ancient Israel, was his, his rationalization, his way of, of, of snowing, of skewing things, of, of, of twisting things to make them look one way, but they were actually another way. So let me begin today, before we get into the text, with a couple definitions uh, to rationalize. Uh, to ascribe one's own actions to causes that superficially seem reasonable and valid, but that actually are unrelated to the true causes. What Saul does in today's passage, he characterizes one way that on a super le superficial level might seem reasonable, but it is actually very far from reality. And Samuel, the spiritual leader, if you will, is able to see through this, and the reader of the text is going to see through it as well. We are in a moment. One more definition, rationalization, a way of describing or explaining selfish actions. That's what we're going to see in today's text from Saul that makes them seem proper, attractive, even God-glorifying. I put these definitions up here because we all have these tendencies. We have the tendency to rationalize our failures, our sins. And there, this passage, this text, if you will, is a, is a loud message to the Christian that is reading it today about the danger, the deceitfulness of sin, and the danger of rationalization. So let's uh, jump into our passage. Hopefully you have your Bibles open or your devices open, and you can follow along with me. Uh, we're going to begin just taking a look at verses 1 through 3. So 1 Samuel 15, 
1 through 3. So Samuel says to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. So here's the message. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Let's pause here. So you get the point. You get the message here. This is completely destroy the Amalekites. If you're not familiar with the Amalekites, with what is going on here, it is mentioned that they waylaid the Israelites as they were coming up out of Egypt. So when you hear the word Amalekites, if you're not familiar with that, you might want to think pirates or terrorists or uh, strong who would attack the weak and do evil. I'm going to deal with our response to this emotionally and psychologically in just a moment. But first, let me just try to get you to understand what is going on here in the ancient Near East context. What was common in the ancient Near East in warfare is that the victor was entitled to the plunder, was entitled to the cash, to the donkeys, to the, to the fat cattle, to the sheep, to all of these things. So God is giving Saul a very clear message here not to do that, to actually wipe out everyone. This is judgment. Now, this is difficult for us in our modern minds and psychology to think of a God of love and grace to do this. But this is part of the character of God. He is a God of justice, and he has chosen to carry out his justice through the king and through the army of Israel. These people are deserving of judgment. So before, or I'm dealing with it now, so I, I'm, I'm wanting to deal with, probably for most of us who uh, are very far from the ancient Near East, in time and in culture and everything, we struggle with this idea of a, of a loving and gracious God, and our God is loving and gracious, to do this. And so we have to shift our thinking into a biblical mindset and reality to understand the justice of God. We ought not try to, to, to diminish what this passage is saying in any way. Look with me at Romans chapter 3 on the screen. It says this, And it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. The, the, the problem of sin is universal. We have all offended God. We, have all, we are all deserving of his justice. He is so holy and so pure and so beautiful and so righteous. We all have offended him. We are all rebels in his eyes. And so the biblical response to this should not be, how could a loving God do this? But rather, how does a loving God spare the Israelites? Why did he choose in his grace and sovereign grace and mercy to save them? Why did he choose to show, show his love and mercy to me? That is the perspective that we ought to have as difficult as it may be to attain that. So Saul is given this task 
It's a divine task to carry out judgment. It is not racism. It is not an Israelite supremacy sort of thing. It is simply the judgment of God. So let's see what he does. We've read the text, but I'm acting like we haven't. So let's see what what happens. So he's given this task, and we're at verse 4. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. I mean, there, let me just pause for a moment, is one of the only good things we see in this chapter that Saul does. He, he, he gives warning so that there is not collateral damage here to these people, the Kenites. He goes on, he says, For you, the Kenites showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. So what we see here in verses 4 through 6, is Saul uh, showing grace to them, to the Kenites, and then he's going to go about his task. Let's pick it up in verse 7. So then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. I circled that in my Bible. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army... Not just Saul, not just the army, but Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Let's pause here again. So we might be tempted to think, well, he's, he's done most of what he was supposed to do. We might be tempted to think he, 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 he's done a lot of what God called him to do and we might want to think of a partial obedience or a deficient obedience or he's, he's done mostly what he's supposed to do but he has not done exactly what God has called him to do. To remind you, if you weren't paying attention, he was to not spare anyone including camels and donkeys. So Saul rather did what was common, and he kept the choice plunder. And it would be wrong for you and me to conclude that what he's done was mostly okay and just a small thing. We're going to see as we move through this text that this is not the way that God views this. This is a tragic disregard to God's word, what Saul has done. Let's come back to the text and look at verses 10 and 11. So though the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the, the creator and sustainer of the universe, is grieved. I am grieved that I have turned away. I'm sorry, I am I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. So we see God's grief and we see that he has characterized what Saul has done as turning away from the Lord. This is not a small thing. This is not just a slight deficiency. So Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Verse 11, he spends the entire night in prayer, in communion with God. 
I want to go back to verse 10 and verse 11 here and, and speak, draw attention to this idea that God is grieved. Look at verse 11 with me on the screen in the King James Version. In this old language, it says, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. If we were reading the King James Version here, we might think that God has changed his mind or that God has sinned. When it says, it repenteth me, that's an old-fashioned way of saying, uh, I repent. A better way to translate this is probably what your translation has, where God is saying, I am grieved. God does not make mistakes. God is not surprised at what has happened. But we can conclude from verse 11 that God has emotions. He has passions. And God is grieved at what Saul has done and what Saul is doing. He has turned away from the Lord. He has disregarded his word. It is a tragic thing that has taken place here. You see, Saul is living for himself and is all about himself. So Samuel spends this night troubled and in communion with God. Early the next morning, look at verse 12, he goes to see Saul. But he was told, so look at verse 12 with me. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. This doesn't get more clear. He has disobeyed the word of the Lord. Samuel understands the grief and the mourning and the sadness of God after spending a night in communion and prayer with him. He goes to see this monarch, King Saul, and where is he? He is erecting a monument to himself. Saul is about living for himself and his own glory. Now, monuments can be a good thing. I mean, as I read this passage, I think of, of the, uh, the Lincoln Memorial. Have you guys been there? Anybody been to the Lincoln Memorial? This, anyone? A few of you? You guys awake? This massive monument. This appropriate monument to this man who kept our country unified and proclaimed emancipation, proclaimed freedom to the slaves. But he was not seeking to raise a monument for himself. So monuments to honor someone, that in and of itself is, is, is not a bad thing. But, but we just see very clearly here that, Saul, that, that, that Saul, this monarch, is all about himself in this moment of disobedience to the Lord. He is putting up a monument to himself. Jesus deals with the problem of self-focus and, and wanting to be great. In Matthew chapter 18, look at it with me on the screen. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And He said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
God is not calling us as his followers, even his king of Israel, to erect monuments to himself and for, to self-glory and to live for self, but he calls us to humility. Our model, if you will, is a child. One commentator says this, he says, the child is held up as an ideal not of innocence, purity, or faith, but of humility an unconcern for social status. Jesus advocates humility of mind, not childish, childness, childishness of thought. Humility of mind. This is the opposite of what we are seeing in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So the way the Christian should read this passage in light of Jesus' teaching about humility is that you and I would be seeking humility in our own lives, that we would be able to consider others better than ourselves and move away from the, the rationalization and the compromise and the not telling the things that we have done wrong or the temptation, temptations that we've seen as for what they are. So seek humility for yourself, not a monument to yourself. Seek humility for yourself, not a monument to yourself. Humility is one of these things that, that really comes by his grace. We don't have a checklist, and at night we, we check off, yeah, okay, I've arrived. I'm, I'm humble. We ask God to give us an orientation to show compassion toward others and away from ourselves and toward him ultimately, that he is sovereign, that he is Lord of our lives. And because of that, we have an orientation to think of others. That is at the very heart of Christ. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's thinking of others as he goes to the cross. He's thinking of redemption. He's thinking of the new heavens and new earth and the world being restored as it, as it should be. He's thinking of others, and that is the orientation that you and I need. It is the opposite of what we see here in King Saul. Well, we've made it uh, through the beginning here, verses 1 through 12. Uh, are you tracking with me today, church? All right. Let's come back and look at verses 13 and following. So verse 13, so he, he goes to see him, Samuel, the spiritual leader, the prophet, priest, and judge, if you will, the spiritual leader of Israel. He goes to find him, and he's gone. He's, he's erecting a monument. So finally he reaches him, verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what, is, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? I mean, this, this part should be a movie scene, right? So he, he, he's coming, and upon greeting, Saul is the first to see, speak, which tells us something about him. The Lord bless you, I've done exactly what God has called me to do. And as he's saying that, the men can hear the sheep. The men can hear the cattle that were supposed to be wiped out are, are, are there making the noise that they make. There is an a audible testimony to him not doing what, he's called, what he was called to do as he's saying, the Lord bless you, I've done exactly what I was supposed to. So verse 15, Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. Does that sound familiar, that line? The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. I circled that word, your. We would expect here the Lord, our God. But Saul 
is, is showing some distance here. The reader should notice he is not speaking about his own God, but he is recognizing there's a difference between Samuel's God and Saul's God. But Saul is rationalizing here. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, Samuel. But we totally destroyed the rest, he's saying. He is rationalizing. He is not speaking the truth here. Samuel would have none of Saul's self-righteous protestations. Look at verse 16. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. I mean, this is a strong stop. You know, all of us have probably been involved in some sort of rationalization of ourselves where we needed someone wise to just come in and just says, stop with the course that you're on, with the road that you're on. You are not being straightforward. You are not telling the truth. His motivation in keeping this plunder was not to worship the Lord, to sacrifice. It was to keep the plunder for himself. He tells him to stop. Let's come back to our, our text here in the middle of verse 16. 17, or sorry, we're verse 17. So Samuel says, Although you were once small in your own eyes, and did not did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? And he's alluding here to Saul's humble perspective. Remember where he was when it was time for him to be inaugurated? Where was he? Hiding among the baggage. He didn't take to being the monarch, like, I'm ready to do this. I'm in charge. Give me the reins here. He 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 had some trepidation and some humility at one point. You were once small in your own eyes. He's alluding to how he was, but he's not that way anymore. The Lord anointed you king over Israel, verse 18, and he sent you on a mission, saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people. The Amalekites make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? So if we pause here, we would now expect repentance. We'd now expect some truth-telling. We would now expect him to change course if he's one who fears the Lord. But he doubles down. Look at verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. That's old, that sentence just doesn't work. Verse 21. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, to sacrifice to him at Gilgal. So, one commentator writes this. He says, even the best sacrifice without obedience gains nothing. Saul is trying to sell here that the reason that he hasn't slaughtered all the animals is because he's going to worship the Lord with them at Gilgal, and maybe he was actually going to do that. He is traveling to Gilgal, and maybe he was actually going to do that, but the motivation was not to worship the Lord. The motivation was to take this plunder, and this is a secondary smokescreen that he is rationalizing. So God reveals the deceitfulness of sin through Saul's rationalizations here. This is a warning for the Christian who's reading this passage for us not 
to rationalize what we do, not to take the actions that we make that are wrong and try to put ourselves in a better light because of them. This is an incredibly dangerous course to be on if you take it all the way, and Saul has taken it all the way. What Saul is doing is something like, you know, uh, someone, a Christian, who holds back money from the IRS on his tax return or her tax return and doesn't report this and gets away with this and and doesn't do it, doesn't report it, and, and doesn't have to pay those taxes. And another believer learns about this and talks to the person about it, and he says, well, the reason I didn't do that is I'm going to give all of that money to this cause, to the church or to the poor. That is essentially what is going on here with Saul. Um, what is going on here is, is that he is worshiping in vain. Look with me on the screen at Mark 7. The leaders in the first century, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus describes them, they worship me in vain. You have let go of the commands of God. Saul has let go of the command of God. And his worship is, is a side thing. The sacrifice is a side thing. And he is not one who is fearing God and loving him with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So God has revealed the deceitfulness of sin through Saul's rationalizations. And this is one of the main things that we are to see in this passage. We come now to verses 22 and 23. And we're pretty much going to finish up here with this poetic section. This is one of the most well-known sections in the book of 1 Samuel. So Saul doubles down in his rationalizations, and now Samuel replies with with this poetry, this poetic section. Let's look at verse 22. He says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So let's talk about verse 22 for just a moment. He is pointing out the complete absurdity and lack of value of offering these animals that were supposed to be slaughtered to the Lord as part of the ceremony and the worship of the life of of Israel. What he's not saying here is that God doesn't delight in offerings and sacrifices. What he's saying is he doesn't delight in someone who completely ignores the voice of the Lord and then somehow maintains the ritual of sacrifice and worship. Now, if you're not familiar with this, the the life of of animal sacrifice and, and the life of temple worship was central to ancient Israel. The people were commanded by God to do this sort of thing. But to do this sort of thing, simultaneously ignoring God's direct word to you, is what is so despicable. So what God is really after here is both of these things. But he's highlighting in the life of Saul that you've just done the one thing. You have just uh, attended the worship service on Sunday morning and your worship is in vain. Mark 7, you have let go of the commands of God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they kept all of these rules and regulations and so on, but they ignored the voice of the Lord. They they ignored the plight of the poor, and they followed their own rules and regulations. This is kind of like a person 
who never misses a Sunday morning gathering like this, maybe the equivalent or the thing that's most analogous to temple worship is our celebration of the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist. It goes by a whole variety of names. where We partake of the bread and the cup, remembering what Christ did some 2,000 years ago and that he's coming back. Maybe the thing most analogous to this is the person who doesn't miss a Sunday gathering and doesn't miss a participation of the Lord's Supper but doesn't hear the voice of God to love and care for their neighbors all around them and their neighbors, their physical, literal neighbors uh, see this person as someone who doesn't care and isn't compassionate and doesn't, doesn't follow what God actually says in his word, but doesn't miss Sunday morning, doesn't miss the Lord's Supper. This is what Saul is doing. And this is why Samuel responds in this way, does the, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey. His obedience would come out of a relationship that he doesn't have at this point. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Verse 23. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Church, this is really important. Verse 23. I've got rebellion circled in my Bible, I've got arrogance circled in my Bible. What God is wanting the Christian, you and I, as we read 1 Samuel 15, to see today is that rebellion against God's clear word is like divination. That arrogance, the way that Saul is living his life, is like idolatry. And what is divination? Look on the screen with me, 1 Samuel chapter 6. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistine called for the priests and the diviners, divination, and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They're looking to the voodoo doctors, the diviners, divination. What this poetic expression is saying in verse 23 is that the rebellion of the monarch, the first monarch of Israel, that rebellion is similar and analogous to the life of a Philistine who's going to this, this divination to try to figure out what to do. This diviner, this, this sorcery or rich witchcraft or something like that. That is, is what he is equating this with. And arrogance like the evil of idolatry. The king of Israel, the monarch, is being identified as an idolater of someone who has disregarded God's word. So, rationalization threatens one's relationship with God and in this passage is revealing the unbelief of King Saul who has not just fallen short but has completely disregarded the word of the Lord and has turned away from God himself. So, how do we finish here with a word of hope and encouragement? We, we see the deceitfulness of sin. That is what God wants us to see in 1 Samuel 15. And for our hearts to be as inclined and longing to be against rationalization in our own lives as much as possible. What he wants from us is not to rationalize our sin, but to confess it. To bring it to the Lord. 
So if you're here today and you're thinking of certain rationalizations that you either verbalized to someone else or that you've gone through in your own mind, you should not be thinking, well, I don't have uh, faith and I'm a rebel. You should be thinking, I need to bring this to the Lord and repent. That is what is missing here in 1 Samuel 15. He's doubling down on his rationalizations instead of asking for mercy that God wants to bring. So do not rationalize your sin. Confess it to the Lord Jesus Christ. The sense of the evil of sin is given to quicken our application to Christ, to make it speedy, and not to discourage our approach to his throne of grace. This is what John Newton writes to a friend who is struggling with that. He's saying, as you get this sense of of evil of sin in yourself, that should speed you on to confess it to Christ, and he is faithful and just and will forgive you. Let's close with this, Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. We don't see a monarch who fears him in 1 Samuel 15, and so he is rejected as king. May God see in you and me someone who fears him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is good news. This is the good news of the gospel. Christ came to heal the sick and to forgive our sins. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we see in 1 Samuel 15 the deceitfulness, the nastiness of sin. And Lord, if we're honest, we have done the same sort of thing. From time to time, or maybe frequently, we have rationalized our ways and made ourselves look better than we appear. But God, we ask by your mercy that we would, unlike Saul, have humility, that unlike Saul, we would have the ability by your grace to run to you and to confess our sins and even to confess them to one another so that we might be healed and strengthened and rejoice and have a smile on our face and thanksgiving and worship on our hearts. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would help us, that you would make us humble, considering others more important than ourselves, and looking to the needs of others before our own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.